Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 185. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I followed the career of Dr. Janet Smith for decades. She's got the mind of St. Augustine and the courage of St. Paul. We're going to hear her take on masculinity for Toxic Male Month in this final installment. If Catholics have any hope of returning the country to God, our families to God, then we need to match and surpass the intensity of the Marxists. It's impossible to turn on the news and not see another victory from the anti-family woke crowd. You cannot create any meaningful change by sitting back and just consuming podcasts and signing online petitions. Church Militant's Call to Action Convention is the blueprint for taking back the church and the culture. We've assembled a team of panelists that have unseated politicians, exposed corrupt clergymen, and saved the unborn, not to mention converted people to the one true faith. And now we are asking you to get involved. What you put into this is what you we'll get out of it. So please sign up at cmresistance.com and we'll show you exactly how you can begin to change your local community 
to be God-fearing, pro-family, and true to our country's values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of true happiness. Before I introduce you to Dr. Smith, something very special happened a few weeks ago that impacts each and every one of you in a remarkably positive way. In fact, it impacts the entire Catholic Church in America in a positive way. And we could use some good news right about now, couldn't we? A few weeks ago, I was sitting at my computer trying to get some work done when an email came in from Bishop Joseph Strickland, who began Toxic Mail Month with us. It said he was waiting for a flight at an airport and that if I had a minute, I should give him a call. I dropped everything I was doing to call Bishop Strickland. I'd been talking to him about launching his very own podcast, and I hoped he'd relented and was going to ask me to set it up for him. And that's exactly what he wanted to talk about. Sort of. <laughs> After we chatted a few moments, I'd realized that I'd lost the battle on getting him to launch his own podcast. However, it's this man's humility that motivated him to ask for something that's very special for the cantankerous Catholic and you six-pack warriors. Bishop Strickland is so humble that he thinks if he launched his own podcast, no one would listen. So he wants to see if he can build a bit of a following first, and he's going to use the cooperation of you six-pack warriors to do it. His Excellency asked me if I'd be willing to add a new segment to the show that would allow him to answer questions that you six-pack warriors submit. Without hesitation, I said yes. It'll take us the month of July to set up his segment so it can launch in August. One of the challenges we faced is a name for the segment. The Holy Spirit took care of that one, though. After spending hours racking my brain for a title, then the problem was solved on the solemnity of the Sacred Heart. That beautiful solemnity is also the day that Roe v. Wade was struck down, thanks be to God, thus ending or grossly limiting the evil practice of abortion in most states. As I watched church militants' live coverage after the ruling was announced, I recall thinking, thanks be to God, the Sacred Heart finally won. A few moments later, church militant played a soundbite with Bishop Strickland. That's when it dawned on me that the segment had to be called The Sacred Heart Wins. Before telling His Excellency, I ran down the story to a couple of trusted confidants, and they liked it. So I emailed Bishop Strickland and asked what he thought. He replied, I like it. Let us give thanks in prayer. So the name of the segment is The Sacred Heart Wins. The other obvious challenge involves you six-pack warriors. All through July, I'm building a database of questions for His Excellency to answer. Keep in mind that this is the bishop who I said to his face that I'd previously called him a coward, and he still chose to ask me for a segment on the cantankerous Catholic. So I don't think you can ask any question that's too tough for him. You can send as many questions as you want, as often as you want. Just submit them through the Reach Joe page at cantankerouscatholic.com or use my email joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. The way the segment will work is that I'll ask His Excellency the questions, then he'll answer them for you during the segment. It's that simple. You ask, he answers. 
Oh, by the way, I'm very proud to say that about 15 minutes after Roe was overturned, my own state of Missouri became the very first state in America to completely outlaw abortion. Now let's get to our guest. As I mentioned already, I've read Dr. Janet Smith's writings for years. She has written extensively about abortion and, as a necessity of that topic, masculinity, men being men. After having read her work for decades, I can tell you that I've got the utmost respect for Dr. Smith and her scholarship. Dr. Janet Smith recently retired from Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, Michigan. She's the author of Humane Vitae, A Generation Later, and A Right to Privacy. A book called Self-Gift is a volume of her already published essays on Humane Vitae and the thought of John Paul II. She edited Why Humane Vitae is Right, Living the Truth in Love, and Why Humane Vitae is Still Right. She served three terms as a consultor to the Pontifical Council on the Family. She's also received three honorary doctorates and several other awards for scholarship and service. More than two million copies of her talk, Contraception, Why Not?, have been distributed. Her materials can be found at JanetSmith.org, and that will be in the show notes. Free copies of her talks are also available there. Since most of you have probably never heard of Dr. Janet Smith, I hope this statement of her bona fides will establish her credibility. Let's listen to Dr. Janet Smith. Dr. Smith, welcome to the Cantankerous Catholic. I'm, I'm awfully honored to have you on this show. You have been one of my Catholic heroes for years and years. <laughs> Good to know. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Now, you've written a great deal about contraception, and you've brilliantly shown a correlation between contraception and homosexuality. In fact, you wrote on an article on Catholic World Report about Theodore McCarrick, quote, To those who have eyes to see, it's not hard to see that the widespread embrace of contraception leads to the approval of homosexuality. After all, those who accept contraception hold that respecting the procreative possibility of the sexual act is not essential to the moral performance of that action. Uh, will you expound on that for six-pack warriors? Yes, certainly. Uh, I mean, God intended the, the sexual act to be for two purposes. One is to bond male and female together. And then as a result of that, which is an act of love, that they've um, committed their whole, <clears throat> whole lives to each other. They've committed their whole lives to each other. And it's open to life. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that is done through the, the marital act, I'd like to say. Now, it, and it, it, it should be pretty obvious to anybody who observes uh, sex in human among human beings and animals, that it's it, one of the, the reasons it exists is to bring forth new life. And you can imagine how people's sexual lives would change in our culture if they were always conscious that this act leads could lead to a new life. Um, contraception takes out, at least theoretically, um, the possibility of new life coming to be from a sexual act. And now it's it's taken out one of the essential purposes. Contraception takes out that purpose. If that purpose is left there, 
people would be a whole lot more responsible. They would say, I shouldn't be having sex with this person unless I'm prepared to be a parent with this person, because parenthood could be the result of this act. And I deserve it to any children that I bring into this world to be prepared to be a lifetime father or mother with them in union with the father or the mother of of this child. You take out the procreative possibility from the act and you turn it into an act. Some people say, well, it becomes an act that's being done for just for love. And I say, yeah, just for love and <laughs> pleasure. Pleasure <laughs> is the, is the, um, major purpose now. And God made all the things he wants us to do often pleasurable, sleep, eat, have sex, all right? But he wants us to recognize their purpose and respect the purpose of, of those. So now you've, you've said that the sexual act can be just for showing your affection for a person, um, for a, a pleasure with another person, but the procreative possibility is is not essential to it. So what are homosexuals doing? They're using their bodies in a, in a sexual way, uh, supposed, possibly to express affection, though tons of homosexual sex is just simply physical. They barely know the person, uh, that they might be completely anonymous. And you say, what is this? What is anonymous sex? <laughs> anonymous <laughs> sex is, and sometimes now college kids are doing the same thing. They get drunk and go off, um, with someone they met at a party and don't know at all and quote unquote have sex. It's not an expression of love. It's not an expression of affection. It's not an expression of lifetime commitment. Sex without the procreative possibility is simply by its very nature a momentary physical act. It need not engage the, engage the affections. It need not engage commitment. Whereas an act that's open to children <laughs> certainly needs to, um, is an expression, honestly, of commitment. If you're not having, if you're not using a contraceptive, you're saying to that person with your body, which God intended, you're saying with your, your body, I love you so much. I am willing to be in a lifetime relationship with you. Amen. Because that's what it is to have a baby with someone else. It's to be in a lifetime relationship. So you're saying, I'm willing to be a parent with you. And even more so, one hopes, I really want to be a parent with you. But you can't say that with homosexual sex. You can't possibly say that because there's no procreative possibility uh, in the act. So heterosexuals honestly have a hard time saying to homosexuals what you're doing is wrong because most heterosexuals are contracepting and they've they've almost reduced their, or I guess I want to use the word reduced and maybe it's offensive, but they've, they've changed their act into being one that is pretty identical to the act of homosexuals. True. It's simply for physical pleasure and not for procreation. So, you know, for us to say to homosexuals, you shouldn't be engaging in this act. They could rightly say right back to us, well, if you're using contraception, you shouldn't be engaging in that act either. So, <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Bottom line is, modern sexuality seems to be all about the orgasm. I'm sorry to be so crude, but that's the bottom line. Uh, I think you're. I think you're exactly right. And it, I mean, it, it saddens me greatly to see young people live together a couple years before marriage, and of course they're contracepting all that time, and then they go off to this ceremony and they make these lifetime vows with each other, and then they go back to bed. And with each other and have sex. How is that sex any different from the sex they had before they were married? It's the same. It has no commitment. 
it is it is for pleasure and not for procreation and not for even expressing commitment. How do you make it into an act that expresses commitment after marriage when it didn't express commitment before marriage? And what right. makes the act express commitment again is it's the na- the nature of the act is it expresses a willingness to be in a lifetime relationship with this person when it, the procreative possibility is respected. Because you're saying, I'm willing to be a parent with you, which means I'm willing to be in a lifelong relationship with you. So couples who wait until marriage to get to have sexual intercourse, marital intercourse, to express <laughs> their love uh, and commitment through this act, uh, when it, they respect the procreative possibility, that's what the act says just what the marriage vow says. Till death do us part. I want a lifetime commitment with you. If you've been contracepting and living together before marriage or just contracepting before marriage and you get married, it's just really hard to say how this act differs from the act you've had with other girlfriends or other boyfriends. Um, it, it doesn't express commitment. No, it doesn't. And, you know, statistically, based on surveys where Catholics tell on themselves, Marriages where contraception isn't involved last much longer than marriages that uh, that do have contraception involved. That that's exactly right. I mean, we can you can actually there's there's many factors involved, but surely contraception is a major contributing factor to the incredible increase in the divorce rate since contraception became available uh, at the turn of the last century, when contraception was not. Uh, widely used. The divorce, divorce rate was under 10%. Now, again, there's lots of reasons for that. The, 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 most people were Christians. Most people were committed to not getting divorced, etc. Well, you know, even most Christians these d- days, and even those who are committed to not getting divorced, they get divorced, right? Uh, sometimes the, uh, three or four times. Three, sometimes three or four times. And they don't, re- they don't understand that they've actually taken a major glue out of um, of the relationship, uh, the glue of expressing uh, the willingness every time you engage in the sexual act to be a parent with another person. And then, of course, when you are a parent with another person, mm, that's super glue. I mean, <laughs> you know, if you have any, uh, the love that you have for your children should make you want to work at this relationship harder than anything you've ever worked at in your life. Amen. Because that, that child deserves a, a mother and a father who are committed to each other and to them for the rest of their life. That's absolutely true. I had four sons, and really I didn't become a man until after the kids started coming because all of a sudden there was something greater than me, and I wasn't even a Catholic yet. Dr. Smith, here on the Cantankerous Catholic, we're using the radical left's own words of derision for men against them by declaring June to be Toxic Male Month. Uh, I see their Gay Pride Month as a direct attack on the Sacred Heart of Jesus as well as strong Catholic masculinity. The left has almost won the fight by making Catholic men feel guilty for being masculine. Catholic men have either become wimps in the church, thereby allowing women and effeminate men to fulfill their roles in the church, or they left the Catholic church altogether. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, uh, the phrase toxic masculinity is, is so, um, so offensive. Uh, it is. And, uh, it, you know, it's, there's, there's a toxic femininity as well. I mean, it's not that there isn't a toxic masculinity, but of course what they mean when they say it is all masculinity is toxic. Masculinity Amen. by its very nature is to- toxic. And again, God wired human beings to, that our natural desires are directed towards the good. Now, we're fallen creatures, which means that we can redirect those natural desires to our own selfish purposes, right? So masculinity, which by its very nature is protective and is uh, wants to provide, protect and provide, basically, um, and love, and love in a very self, selfish, selfless, uh, and generous way. Uh, take responsibility. Uh, you can see in most men... Uh, a profound change when they become a father, as you can see with women. Their life becomes very, uh, when women become mothers, in, in the instance of both of them, they almost instantaneously, uh, when the baby is born, become profoundly other-directed. All right? They would basically die for that child at this moment. They know this baby, not at all. It's been in the world for maybe seconds, maybe hours, for a very short time. And the parents already have this little feeling in their heart, which is altogether new, which is, I would die for you. If someone came in this room and said, I'm going to shoot one of you, both the mother and the father would say me first. All right. Not the baby. All right. They wouldn't hold up the baby and say, oh, the baby's only been here for a couple <laughs> seconds. You can take the baby. It means nothing to us. Uh, we've had, you know, full lives and commitments and relationships. So just kill the baby. Nobody says that. All right. So, and I've seen it with young men. I, I, had a young man, uh, I was saying something about how men are protectors and providers, and there was a class I read about, about how they were teaching uh, young men who had never been fathers how to change a baby's diaper and hold a diaper and comfort, uh, I mean, fold fold a baby. No, I got to get that. (laughs) (laughs) Hold a baby and and change a diaper. And uh, there was one man who was um, 30 years old, he'd never held a baby before in one of these classes. I said, you know, what kind of culture is this that men can get to 30 years of age and never held a baby? It's horrible. So anyway, there was a young man, but only 21 in my living room, and he said, I've never held a baby. I'm an only child. And I actually had a baby in the room at the time. I was babysitting for one of my goddaughters. And I said, why don't you hold this little Emily? And Emily was very tiny, premature. He held Emily. And immediately, I mean, honestly, instantaneously, I see this surge of masculine hormones through his system. And, he, <laughs> you know, he, he's all of a sudden he's saying, is it too cold in here for Emily? Should should the air conditioning be changed? Um, can it, do you have a blanket for Emily? Uh, I think that light is too bright for Emily. Could you, could you turn that light down? <laughs> I mean, it was just like that, okay? I read about a 35-year-old man who's driving away from uh, the delivery of his first child and he stops at this is a time when you didn't have um, everything online. And he bought a um, a padlock for his video cabinet because he had videos there he didn't want his child watching. <laughs> because baby's <laughs> just hours old. But and you can be sure by the time that child is old enough to be watching videos, they will be long gone. And, and he probably will have figured out he shouldn't be watching those either. All right. So everything about parenthood raises your game, all right? You want a better world for your child. You want, and that is true masculinity, all right? That's true masculinity. And 
are, it's, it's downgrading parenthood that has downgraded fatherhood as much as anything else, right? Women aren't looking for a man who would be a good father to their children. A lot of men that right now might not be the most attractive on their list become very attractive when she says, I want a man who will be a good father, not just one who's handsome and a good athlete and this. I want someone who's responsible, generous, kind, etc. And, you know, I- they begin looking more at character than they do the outward things, the, the, the more trivial characteristics. And, um, and it's not that they they're willing to marry an unattractive man. It's that he becomes very attractive uh, when she starts looking at, at those qualities. And uh, so, it, toxic masculinity um, is a phrasing, and it's meant to diminish all of masculinity. And you know, women do are often are usually much happier if a man takes a leadership role and does it in a very servant-like quality, as we say. Um, he does it for the purpose of the family, for the purpose of the marriage that he's... And, and a, a good married man, father, virtually every decision he makes is for the well-being of the family. You know, he might like a little sports car, but instead he says, no, I got to get a van. I got a family. I got to get a car that's super safe, uh, not just one that's good looking and fast, all right, because I have a family. I have to choose where I work uh, because of the schools that are available. I need to decide on vacations, not just where I can go and play my games uh, like that I want to do. I have to decide vacation location for the sake of the family. So the selflessness that comes with true masculinity, and true masculinity is pretty much equivalent to good being a good husband and being a good father, has written into it a kind of leadership um, a leadership role that he, every decision he makes is for the sake of the other. And then as he approaches the culture, I mean, it, it really is in a sense much more the male's responsibility. The baby is born and the mother is saying, I need to nurture this little human being and help this little human being bring out all their talents and gifts and make sure that they, they feel loved and they never feel abandoned. And that's my job. And that the, the father says, oh yeah, I, I have to do all that too. But in a certain sense, even prior to that for me, is I have to make this world a safe place for my child. Amen. Now I care. The minute that baby is born again, I care, um, are, is the school system any safe, right? Are, the play, are there good playgrounds where my kid can play? You know, and um, again, what kind of policies does our, our community have? Does it have porn shops? Does it have brothels? Does this, I don't want that in, in, the, in the town where my, my child's growing up. <laughs> You know, and so a man takes responsibility not just for the family, but for the whole world, because he has now got a family that lives in that world, and he wants to make sure that that world is is a good place uh, for his child. So uh, <laughs> I, it's just a shame that people uh, look at masculinity and not try to figure out what are all the amazing good qualities that come with masculinity that we need to. And in a sense, foster in our in our sons, uh, and boys love to become men, and actually, men yes, love to boys do. to become men. It's one of the things men just love to do is to take a boy and help him become a man, and just say, "Son, <laughs> these are the temptations for men. Avoid them. Son, these are the responsibilities of men. Take them, all right, and do them well." 
and th- so instead of downgrading masculinity, we should uh, see what it, the glorious thing that it really is and help boys become men and help men become better men. You know, one argument against boys being born homosexual, I recall an experiment that was done or a series of experiments back in the 80s, put a little boy in a room and put nothing but Barbie dolls and other girl things in there for him to play with. He picks up Barbie and starts pointing and saying, bang, bang, bang. (laughs) I mean, masculinity is natural to them, even at that age, even when they're little boys. And that bang, bang, bang for the boys really is a kind of a, um, it's again a protectiveness. They, they want to kill the bad guys. They right. One of the good guys that brings down the bad guys. That protectiveness is there from the very, very start. That, um, that's who I am. I fight what's bad in this world. That's exactly right. You see it among brothers and sisters. Boy is always willing to defend his younger brother or his sister. First and foremost, they want to defend mom. You know, that this is just natural with boys, and it should be fostered and nurtured. Uh, yeah, if a woman says, I can take care of myself, you've <laughs> 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 just thrown away a great gift. You know, it, and even the opening the doors for women and being gallant, you want to say, let a man be gallant. It one, once he finds out he and he finds out he loves that. He loves that, and and it will percolate into so many things. Um, I, I try to tell my my friends that you know they. I just one little story, but one day the wind. I was kayaking with a friend, and the wind came up, and there was just no way we could get back up the river. And she said, "What are we going to do? We're like two miles away from our camping site." And I said, "I saw some guys putting a." a deck in and I'll I'll show you what we do. We just go over there and we're damsels in distress. You know, Um, we don't know how to get back to our campsite. Now, um, those two guys were pretty busy with their deck and I don't blame them for sort of ignoring us, but there was an 85 year old guy standing on the the bank and he looks at us and he says, he just says, well, I got a truck. And he says, you come up, I'll put, let's put those kayaks right in my truck. And, and you know, I can pick up my mail, I can go downtown and get a sandwich. But the big thing was he was rescuing two damsels in distress. Yeah. And you can tell that made his day, you know. And so not to see that that's a natural relationship between male and female um, is sad. Men are ready to spring into action to help. Always. And, 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 I mean, that's why they love owning trucks for, for crying out loud. They're going to haul stuff for people. And if they can haul stuff for a female, whoa, all the better. (laughs) All my life, I've opened doors for ladies. A couple of years before I ended up in this wheelchair, I opened a door for a lady at, I think it was City Hall here in town. And uh, she turned around and chewed me out and told me to let go of the door. I said, ma'am. If I weren't to hold this door open for you, all my ancestors would come up out the grave and get me. That made her laugh, and she at least let me hold the door open for her. But I can't understand why these women are that way. Uh, they make me feel bad for being a man. 
Let's shift gears a little bit here, Dr. Smith. Let's talk about James Martin a bit. I don't like calling him father, but I suppose I should, so we'll call him Father James Martin. In a Catholic World Report article, you wrote, quote, Father Martin is correct. A bridge must be built between the Catholic Church and those struggling with same-sex and transgender issues. But it cannot be built of tissue paper of suggestions based on rhetorical questions and sophistry, end quote. Based on that, t- I love that phrase. Based, based on that tissue paper phrase, I'm pretty sure that you have a lot more to say about the leading American champion of sexual perversion. Just take it away, doctor. Oh, yeah. It, it's true. I could go probably for hours. Um, <laughs> th- that was, uh, uh, part of a review of his book, uh, Building Bridges. And, I tried to show in the review that it was just filled with sophistry and rhetorical rhetorical questions. And it wasn't even, he didn't even mount any kind of a decent um, argument about why, say, homosexual relationships are are acceptable. He, he doesn't really. It's his is basic, it's basically a certain sense, God made you that way. Um, well, you know, even if he did, honestly, I'm, I'm quite convinced I was born irritable and lazy because... <laughs> I mean, I am, and I would never choose that. <laughs> I don't want to be irritable or lazy, but I'm fighting it all the time. So I can't say God made me irritable and lazy, and therefore I don't need to try to um, get my myself in accord with, with his will. And everything that James Martin does is designed to um, make those who have struggled with same-sex attraction, or don't, maybe don't struggle, they love it, they love, they're happy with it, they're fine with it, and others who are accepting of those who have same-sex relation, not accepting as a beloved son and daughter of God, but saying affirming them in their same-sex attraction, um, that's all he tries to do is just affirm them and make them feel just fine, um, and that there's not any reason that they need to try to, um, again, align their sexuality with God's plan uh, for sexuality. And I call that a tissue paper bridge. It'll It'll collapse. Yes, uh, it you're, will. You're trying to bring people over into the church, and uh, it's on a uh, it's on a flimsy, flimsy premise. Uh, certainly, the strong premise is that they are beloved sons and daughters of God, um, but not in every choice that they make. Just as the rest of us are sons, beloved sons and daughters of God, but we we mess up a lot. We have disordered passions. I mean, I'm, again, I'm, I'm irritable and lazy, and. If I really want to be in God's kingdom, I had better uh, do what I can uh, to become uh, kind and patient and um, selfless in my my work for the kingdom. So, uh, but what really one of the things that really annoys me about James Martin is not James Martin. Um, it's it's how the church responds to James Martin. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who have views that are contrary to the church's teaching. Um, James Martin is just one of them, and he's particularly successful in, in getting out there. But that the church does not correct him, that bishops allow him to come into their... He actually, he actually gets, gets praised, praised by, by Francis. Francis. He gets praised. He gets invited in by Francis. And Francis, at the same time, is basically making life very hard for those who like the traditional Latin Mass. And just because some of us are kind of snobby about our preference for the traditional Latin Mass, he's, he's willing to shut the whole thing down 
But someone who's absolutely teaching contrary to the church's teaching and endangering immortal souls, without a doubt, endangering immortal souls, and his immortal soul is in danger, the Holy Father doesn't choose to correct, right? And you want to say, what is what kind of priorities is that? Amen. Um, and you know, as if there's something wrong for saying, well, I think I think Adorientum is a good thing, and I think the Holy the, the Communion Rail is a good thing. Oh, yeah, you're saying the Novus Ordo is illegitimate. You're saying it's horrible. You're saying you're a better Catholic than everybody else. I said no. I'm saying Adorientum is more respectful. I'm saying that the Communion Rail is more respectful. Oh, you're saying you're a superior Catholic. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this form of the Mass is more reverential. Oh, you're saying the Novus Ordo was illegitimate and people who go there are moral midgets or something. I'm not saying anything like that. But James Martin can say, I look forward to the day when, you know, two homosexual men who love each other can stand in front of the Lord and receive a blessing for their union, not for their <laughs> determination to be chaste, all right? I will give great blessings to anyone with the same-sex attraction who's fighting to fighting his own passions or her own passions, and, and passions and weaknesses and wounds, sometimes wounds that they're not at all responsible for. Um, trying to achieve chastity in the face of some very deep wounds, and honestly ones that they are not at all responsible for, that person I will bless from here to forever in their attempt to, uh, to be chaste. And you know, I'll take this opportunity to tell our listeners, you shouldn't write off homosexuals because they're homosexuals. We have two obligations, two primary obligations as Catholics, and that's to become a saint and to share the faith. Share the faith with the homosexual person because they're worth it. They're children of God, just like anybody else. Dr. Smith, I worked with one homosexual man for seven years to get him to convert. And he was actively working with me week in and week out. I had to admire his character because he made a determination that he wanted to convert uh, pretty early on. But he refused to be baptized until he was convinced that he could be chased. And, you know, I explained to him that that's what the sacrament of penance is all about. But I understood where he was coming from. He knew in this regard he was weak, but he finally did uh, get baptized and confirmed and I'm proud to call him my godson. To this day, he believes he is homosexual, but he also stays chaste. And you mentioned, you mentioned bringing, trying to bring these, or, uh, Father Martin trying to bring these people into the kingdom of God. I have found, especially with millennials, whenever I'm, uh, teaching the catechism evangelistically, in the first article of the creed, I always prove the existence of God. And with most millennials, that's when they're ready to convert because they've been taught all their lives that there is no God. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm taking over my own interview. <laughs> 
that's good. Dr. Smith, only cocktail party Catholics, those with their heads in the sand, and Catholics on psychotropic drugs don't or won't acknowledge that the Lavender Mafia is pretty much in control of that criminal empire known as the USCCB. And I'm pretty certain that after the McCarrick scandal, you've looked into this a great deal. What can you tell the six-pack warriors about the hold the Lavender Mafia has on the USCCB, the individual bishops, and the dioceses around the country? Yes. Uh, Well, it is a sad story, and it's one that um, took me way too much of my life, I suppose, to see it. Uh, You sort of know it, but you can't really acknowledge it. Um, And often when you point it out to people, it's almost like the emperor has no clothes. That story that a naked king walked down the street, and he had been told that he was wearing beautiful clothing, and he believed it, and he expected everybody else to believe what he believed, so he went out walking naked. And some little kid says, but the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> he was the only one willing to tell the truth. And um, that the churches are heavily populated by um, homosexual males uh, is pretty obvious once you start looking at it. And what does that mean? Um, that Again, the, the treatment of James Martin is a very good sign that um, heterosexual males who really wanted to promote true masculinity would have a problem with James Martin and what he's what he's doing, would not allow him to speak. Uh, but the fact is, anybody who does any reading of the books about the, the um, sexual abuse situation in the church um, and start looking where it happened, well, honestly, to a certain sense, it goes back to Humanity Vitae, Vatican II, Etc. Once the once the church, even the even the um, changing to the Novus Ordo, people thought the church was going to change all of its teaching, and before long, everybody would be allowed to contracept. Homosexuality would be accepted. There would no longer be uh, only a male only male priesthood. In the 1960s, 70s, 80s, major theologians were arguing this, teaching at major Catholic universities, teaching in pontifical universities saying that all these things are eventually going to change, right? And so men in the seminary are saying, what the heck am I doing here? Um, you know, I should leave. Something like 20,000 men left the priesthood between 1970 and 1990 in the United States. And a lot of these were heterosexuals because they thought, oh, I'll, I'll, um, I will uh, be able to get married and maybe eventually they'll let married men become priests so I can do both. But, you know, I think that... Uh, and, and homosexuals are saying, again, heterosexuals are allowed to have sex without any procreative possibility. Why not us? And so that happened in the seminary. I, I think always there's probably been a, a, at least a slightly higher, if not much more, much higher representation of uh, homosexual men in the priesthood than in the whole of society because it's a good place to hide. Um, in the 60s, you had to hide. Uh, grandma wanted to know why you weren't getting married. Um, become a priest, that's that's fine. Uh, that's no longer the, the, tr- the case very often, though in some traditional families that's still the case. They don't, kids, guys don't want to come out because their grandmother or family might be offended. Um, but anybody who looks into it will realize that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the seminaries became really homosexual hothouses. Uh, and young men were encouraged uh, to engage in homosexual sex. Uh, the, and then when 
As the as the man with the same-sex attraction homosexual rises through the ranks in the church, he favors men who have his same orientation. It makes him feel safer. He won't be outed. He won't be kicked out if everybody else in power is homosexual. And the church, honestly, is dominated by a fear of blackmail, a uh, fear of being exposed. Uh, men who did these things in seminary, there's lots of people that know that they did, and they're afraid someone's going to tell so if they, if they um, promote those who also <laughs> engaged in such, in such activity, they feel much safer. And, of course, they all have the same agenda, which is eventually getting the church to approve homosexuality. Uh, now, some of these appear to be very conservative because, that's, again, it's a good way to hide. If, uh, if you show up at all the pro-life events, you say all the right things, people are not going to suspect that you might be same-sex attracted. But as far as your willingness to have other other men in the in the priesthood who have same-sex attraction, you are very much willing uh, to have them in. And so back in the early 2000s, uh, Richard Sype, who looked into all of this, he said at least 30%, and he named names, 30% of the hierarchy uh, were homosexual. I suspect it's actually much higher now because those 30% are going to p- promote others, and it's going to become right. more and more and more. And they are going to favor the homosexual priests. Uh, if you look at chancery offices, I mean, I don't want to malign all the priests who are vicar generals and um, assistants to the secretary, to the bishop, but a lot of them are gay. Yes. Right? And so everything that you take to the to the chancery is going to be received through men who have same-sex attraction. So your desire for more support for natural family planning, for instance, is just going to go nowhere, all right? Um, the tolerance of teachers in schools who are in same-sex marriages, sometimes a priest will report that and a bishop will snatch him out uh, and tell him not do anything about the same-sex couple who's at the school teaching, but will chastise the priest for a lack of tolerance and love and charity and mercy. So um, if you start realizing that there is a dominant homosexual, dominant homosexual presence in the church, it will explain a lot. It will explain a whole lot. And uh, it's kind of a hermeneutical tool, as we call yeah. it. Uh, it. It helps you. If you want to say, why doesn't Bishop so-and-so do X, Y, and Z? And the reason they ask that question is they're saying, he's a bishop. He must believe the church is teaching. He must be very offended and concerned, let's say, that ex- such and such politician is extremely pro-abortion. So if he were really a believer, which bishops are, he would surely do something. And I always stop people and I say, do you understand your first premise is wrong? I mean, if he were a believer, he would do something. Um, all the, the lay people know it. We all know that if we were in a position, we're believers, and we would do X, Y, and Z. And I say, well, why don't the bishops do it? (laughs) Because they've got a different agenda. They want to keep the Democratic Party happy. They want to keep pro-abortion people happy. They want to keep homosexuals happy. And this is why they don't do the things that are perfectly obvious that a believer would do. Yeah, you know, what became really clear to me was just how influential they are. Uh, I spoke with a bishop. I'm not going to mention his name, but I spoke with a bishop who was transferred into a diocese, and this is an Orthodox bishop, a, a good man, 
but he explained to me how he had to walk on eggshells all the time because of the lavender mafia throughout his chancery that were entrenched. I asked him, why do you not just clean house? He said, because I have to worry about the USCCB. The whole thing is tragic because we've got at least a half dozen bishops in this country who would be outstanding bishops if they didn't have to worry about getting their heads chopped off by the hierarchy in the USCCB. And our, our priests are in uh, between a rock and a hard place. As we yes, say. they are. The good priests are, uh, It's not. I mean, that's one of the reasons I was having trouble teaching at a seminary, is that the seminarians were asking me, you know, Professor Smith, if when we, we ordained and if we put some Latin in the Mass or we give a, hom- a, 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 a homily against homosexuality or we... Uh, whatever, um, uh, we would, uh, will the bishops have our backs? And of course I said, of course not. They're going to have your backs. They're going to, they're going to take you by the collar and send you first off for psychological, um, treatment, um, because you have problems (laughs) because you do these things. Um, and if it's not satisfactory, you will be a sideline priest, a canceled priest. And, I felt I didn't want to say this to young men. Um, I, I didn't want to in any way discourage a young man from a, a vocation, but I also didn't want to falsify things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm in a seminary, and so I, I'm going to say those things now because I'm not in a seminary, but I'm not going to be inside a seminary um, saying these kinds of things. Right. Uh, I want men to become priests. I want men, good men. I want them to stay priests. And, you know, one of them again asked, well, what do we do, Professor Smith? Do we stick our necks out? I said, and I still say this. Some people said, yes, they should all stick their necks out. They should all be incredibly courageous and bold and, and just be willing to be thrown under the bus. And I say, and then will you be happy with the rest of the, the priests that are left behind? Are you going to be happy with that, with the priests up there? Because the ones that aren't going to, they're going to be all the ones that don't teach doctrine, say a sloppy mass, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I said, so really, the, the answer to every question of that kind, what should I do, is always ask God. Ask God. Become very prayerful so that you can hear God's voice. And uh, some of you, he's going to say, keep your head down. Just pay right, attention right. to your parish. Uh, do the best you can. Um, others, he's going to say, yeah, stick your head out, and you're going to be John the Baptist. You're going to get your head chopped <laughs> off. You know, But I want you to do that. And then if God wants you to do that, then you do it. If he wants you to keep your head down, even if you want to stick your head out and get it chopped off, if God wants you to keep your head down, then you keep your head down. Unfortunately, in in the seminary, what they are told from day one, honestly, is keep your head down. Don't um, rock the boat. Don't verge outside of your lane. Do what you're told, right? Now, you get a lot of, for a period of time, and I think it's still true, there was an influx of really, especially in the early 2000s, when the church made a public statement that men who have strong homosexual reactions I mean, or uh, temptations and should not be in the priesthood, should not be in the seminary. And so we had an influx of very masculine men. But be- before that, and I'm not saying everybody in the seminary had same-sex attraction, but many men with strong heterosexual orientations did not feel comfortable in the seminary. They were being hit upon. They were being told that they shouldn't be masculine. Again, that their masculinity was toxic, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so they didn't go into the seminary or left quickly. Now they were saying, okay, this is acceptable. <laughs> I'm coming in. We got a lot of problem now with some really bold priests because their masculinity is in full swing there. I love to see it, As but it some of them are going to have to tone it down, not because it's a bad <laughs> thing, not because it's a bad thing, but because it will get them dismissed from the priesthood. And again, God may say to some of them, that's just what I want. And others, because you're going to tell the world what the truth is. And the, but others, he's going to say, no, I want, I want you to go undercover and, um, uh, use your masculine wiles to figure out how to teach the truth without getting sidelined. And, you know, the biggest reason I agree with that is from my own experience, I genuinely believe God has one man for one soul that he's supposed to help. Whenever I was received into the church, the priest who received me into the church came out of retirement to take over the parish he had because his order was about to let the archdiocese have it. And that one priest, if it hadn't been for the first two years as a Catholic with that one priest, I wouldn't be a Catholic today. I'd have dropped out. He formed me. So why did he come out of retirement? Certainly came out to save the parish. Certainly the other people in the parish needed him. Certainly there were a lot of things he did. But as far as I see, I'm the reason he came out of retirement because I became a lifelong Catholic thanks to that man. Oh, I, I could talk for hours about him. I think they ought to canonize him. <laughs> Dr. Smith, I want to thank you for being on the Cantankerous Catholic. There is one thing that I talk about over and over and over again to my listeners is contraception. Would you be willing to come back on the show sometime and talk about that? Yes, of course, but they can also find my signature talk for free, for free, on my website, JanetSmith.org. Yes, and, they um, can. And, and a lot of my other talks. So um, be happy to talk about it because it gets the word out. But you don't have to wait for that. You can find it right on my website. Thank you for sharing that with us. Dr. Smith, I really appreciate you being on here. And I do look forward to having you back again. God Thank love God so you. Much. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Dr. Smith gave some unique insights into both masculinity and contraception that most people don't think about on the first level of their thought processes. I honestly think the things she had to say would be good to listen to again. And don't forget, you can get free copies of her talks at JanetSmith.org. So we've wrapped up Toxic Male Month with a woman's perspective on masculinity. Toxic Male Month hasn't been a fluke. This is going to be an annual event. Next year, I'll have had more time to line up other really good people for interviews. Some you'll be familiar with, some you won't. But you can rest assured that you'll be getting 100% absolute Catholic orthodoxy. So stay tuned. Due to the length of Dr. Smith's interview, there won't be any additional segments today. However, next week we'll be back to normal, whatever that is. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack. 
the Every Catholic Guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.